welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are going to be continuing to talk about COVID as it relates to your immune system. Also going to be talking about the return to school, what those classrooms are going to look like, and what sex education resources are going to be available for the students thanks to some federal funding. Also going to be talking about what do women do to transition from one illustrious career to another. Hello, Serena. And what's the impact on self-esteem? Also going to have a little bit more fun on the program as we talk about pickup lines and some of the great pickup lines that there are and continuing that happiness segment from last week. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. ever listened to this program in the past, you probably know that I do a lot of sexual health education for couples in my clinical practice and for individuals as well. For people all over, I give a lot of talks about it. It's a subject that is near and dear to my heart. So you can imagine I was very excited to learn of the recent federal announcement that the federal government will be providing $2.8 million in funding for organizations helping those who face barriers in learning about sexual and reproductive health and sexual health needs. Joining me on the line to dive a little bit deeper into this is Dr. Jessica Wood. She's a relationship research expert at CCAN. Good evening, Dr. Wood. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Before we get into what CCAN is, what exactly is a relationship research expert? And how can I get that job? (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I've got a kind of a a varied background. Um, I I speak in, you know, my my title is is research specialist, and there's a lot of different things that I do there. But in that role, mostly I do research related to sexual health education, as we'll be talking about tonight, developing resources for educators, uh, such as the Canadian Guidelines for Sexual Health Education, I have a research background uh, in applied social psychology. So I went to the University of Guelph where I did my PhD and I studied, I studied sexual health and relationships primarily. And I looked at you know, people's motivations for relationships and the factors that impact their satisfaction in relationships. And I also have um, a master's that is more of an interdisciplinary perspective on relationships and sexuality. So bringing all of those things together and bringing it into an applied organization where we can use that knowledge to help create resources that help people and educators and policymakers make decisions about, you know, help help people create positive change is something that is very exciting for me. Absolutely. That's outstanding. And I've realized that I am not qualified for that position. So um, but, but thank you very much. I'm glad that you are and that you do this tremendous work. Uh, next thing I'd like to ask you or for the listeners, can you just explain just what CCAN is? S-I-E-C-C-A-N. It's an acronym for? It's an acronym for the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada. So CCAN is a not-for-profit charitable organization and we're basically our, our goal is to help promote sexual and reproductive health in Canada. And a lot of our work is focused on you know, developing resources to help educators, healthcare providers, policymakers, parents, caregivers, 
and others who are, you know, might be providing um, comprehensive sexual health education. And so, you know, I mentioned the Canadian Guidelines for Sexual Health Education. This is a document that CCAM produces that outlines, you know, frameworks, best practices, and principles for comprehensive sex ed in Canada. You know, we really focus on, you know, um, documents and resources that can help people advocate for better sex ed in, in schools and other settings. We provide um, resources sometimes for, you know, youth, uh, for people who are in healthcare settings. We do our own research, so we have, a, have done a series of national studies on um, samples of university students across the country on their sexual health and well-being. We've done studies, national studies of what parents think about sexual health education. And, you know, we do a lot of work on, you know, consulting and, and kind of helping to um, or, or help organizations and governments and, and community community members to, you know, work in sexual health education to, to help promote sexual and reproductive health. And do you, there's a tremendous amount of research. And, you know, do you find that there are barriers even in the work that you do because it's still sexual health and sexual health needs and even the topic of sex is still so stigmatized and still such a shameful subject for a lot of people and, and a lot of parents in primary school, for example, they don't want their children getting education. How much of that shame around sex uh, interferes with the work that, that you do or your organization does? Well, what's, what's interesting, you know, you mentioned parents and our research. So we, we did a study, uh, a national study of parents across Canada and the overwhelming majority of parents, this was a study, I believe there was 2,000, about 2,000 parents. And across the country, 85% said that they support sexual health education in the schools. And they support this early, so they want the majority of subjects introduced, you know, in the earlier grades, so between kindergarten and grade eight. Uh, and this is this is pretty similar, you know, when we look at it across regions. So British Columbia, you know, the, the prairies, Ontario, Quebec, and the Atlantic provinces. And so it kind of contrasts with this idea that parents aren't very supportive of, of sexual health education. But I think often what happens is that there is, you know, a vocal minority, and that comes out mm -hmm. often in the media. And so that gets um, exacerbated and, and played up quite a bit. And I think one of the things that helps sometimes is this kind of research where we can say, hey, you know, yes, we hear from this vocal minority a lot, but, but actually when we do the research, there's a great support from parents across the country for comprehensive sexual health education. And does that, you know, in, in some indirect way underscore um, that there is still shame around it. I mean, is it that parents want the education to be done in the schools because they don't want to do it at home or they don't know how to do it at home? And, and also, is it that they don't want to speak up? They're not as vocal. I agree with you. The the minority around this is very vocal. And, and so that makes it seem like it's more of a majority than not. Um, but it, is there still a stigma associated with education, sexual health education? I mean, I think there's definitely stigmas and, you know, especially when we think about different populations and, you know, I, I can speak to that in just a moment when we talk more about, um, say, the specific uh, funding announcement and, and, our, and the project that we were funded specifically for. But in terms of parents, 
One of the things I, I do think is, you know, parents' comfort level and perhaps their knowledge. Um, you know, it may be that parents aren't as comfortable or they don't know how to have these conversations at home. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, we also find in, in research, too, that young people want to get this information from schools. They want to get it from their parents as well. They want to have it from trusted sources like their school system, their teachers, their parents. Um, and so parents may have these conversations. They may not. But it depends on their comfort level. It depends on their knowledge and their ability to do this. Um, and, you know, one, one thing they can do is just be open to having their children asking them questions. And, of course, if they don't know the answer, telling the children, you know, I don't know that answer, I may come back. But let me figure out and come back to you um, later on. But I do think there's definitely, you know, still some, we've come a long way, uh, but there's definitely still some stigma around just sexual health education in general, especially when we're talking about certain populations. And I think that, you know, this is... Um, this was highlighted or emphasized in, in relation to, you know, the, one of the projects that we were recently funded for um, under this new sexual and reproductive uh, health fund. Joining me on the line is Dr. Jessica Wood. She's a relationship research expert at CCAN. And we are talking about the recent federal announcement that there was going to be $2.8 million in funding for organizations to help those who face barriers in learning about sexual and reproductive health and sexual health needs. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Wood. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So you must be very excited about this funding announcement, $2.8 million. It's a great start to, I mean, I think we have a long way to go, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I mean, I, I educate adults in, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and I'm surprised at their limited knowledge. Um, but this funding is really to help kids in school, um, to help really parents and teachers and, and children learn appropriate sexual health information and, and reproductive health information. So what exactly is this funding going to be used for that CCAN has just received? And so this this funding, as you said, it is a really great start. Um, it's part of a new funding program under the Sexual and Reproductive Health Fund situated uh, within Health Canada. And, you know, I think there, there are some other funds dedicated for other kinds of programs. But as you mentioned, these ones are specifically focused on strengthening sexual and reproductive health services and education for youth. And the project we are funded for is concentrated on enhancing sexual health promotion for autistic and disabled youth uh, by ensuring that health service professionals have resources that have accurate and evidence-based information to you know, help them better address the sexual health needs of autistic youth and youth with physical disabilities. And you know, this is really important because there are a lot of misconceptions about sexuality and disability, sexuality and autism that contribute to a lack of appropriate and accessible sexual health services, supports, and education. There's no misconceptions about disabled people as being disinterested in sex and romantic relationships. There's a lack of training for care providers that do act as these barriers to effective sexual health and reproductive health care and education. There's often not uh, a lot of representations of sex and disability um, available to disabled youth in education or the media. So people with disabilities often have to create, you know, new scripts uh, or new ideas that can be really liberating and incredible, but also challenging when you don't have access to information about sexual health that's relevant to you and that will help you make decisions. 
And I think it's also very hard to uh, come into services or come into the classroom and educate the people who are doing, uh, providing care to them instead of those individuals coming in with that information themselves. So if health service providers already have that information, it can remove one more barrier to effective sexual health care and decrease the burden that is placed on disabled people to do this education for others. Mm-hmm. And it's not that autistic people, I'm sure a lot of people feel that autistic people do not develop sexually, but that is not true. Autistic people may experience certain challenges when it comes to sex and relationships, which is why your work is so important, but an autistic person can have a very fulfilling sex life. Is that um, something that you would uh, agree with? Absolutely. I mean, people are going to be varied, um, you know, regardless of their, you know, neurodiversity and neurotypicality, like people are going to have varied experiences and varied desires. Uh, Some people are going to want to have sexual relationships. Some people are not going to want to have sexual relationships. Um, but the, the, the important thing is that everyone has access to sexual health information and services that meet their needs or that is adapted to their specific learning style so that they can understand the information, that they can get that information, and that they can then make decisions that will you know, protect and enhance their sexual health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are so many people think so many people don't have sex. Like they think older people don't have sex or they think that parents don't have sex or that adolescents don't have sex. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, people with disability, that they don't have sex, people with spinal cord injury, um, people, others don't believe that they have sex or don't understand this. What are some of the important tips or what are some of the educational points, um, that you would convey to people with autism or those who are educating autism in in your resources, for example, or somebody with disability? Um, Well, I I would suggest that, you know, they try to find, uh, you know, a trusted source of information uh, that they can get sexual health information from, um, that they, you know, that completely normal to have a variety of, you know, desires and that, you know, some people want to have sex, that some people do not want to have sex. Uh, and again, it's, it's also around like giving people information about consent and giving people information about healthy relationships and making sure that they can have a place to ask questions uh, and that they feel comfortable and that they've got someone they can talk to and, I think just knowing that, you know, a a lot of the time people have this question around sexuality is just like, am I normal? What, what kind of, what kind of thing is going on in my head here? And how do I, how do I find information to see like, am I normal or is this okay? And being able to, to access that information is incredibly important. And often I think there's this big misconception around, you know, disability, whether it's physical disability, whether it's, you know, illness, whether it is uh, autism, whether it is, um, you mentioned older adults as well. There's a lot of misconceptions around sexuality and older adults. Uh, I think there's just a lack of information that is tailored to people's needs. And they really, we really need to have a broader conception of what sexual health education is so that we can ensure that everybody um, 
has this information because many people, you know, even we're talking about midlife adults or older adults, many people may not have had sexual health education during their school years and they do need information mm-hmm. to make informed about their sexual health. Uh, they may be having uh, sex with new partners and they may not know um, how to practice safer sex or they may not know, um, you know, how to communicate uh, about sexual consent. They may not know how to communicate about sexual pleasure and what they need or they may not know what makes them feel good. So people, you know, really need access to this information and we need to recognize that there are many groups of people who, uh, you know, need to have and education that is tailored to their needs um, and not making this assumption that there's only a specific group of people who are sexual and a specific group of people who need that kind of information and services. Absolutely. And when autistic adolescents lack the knowledge of sexual health um, and sexuality, that may lead them, and and I know this is supported in the research, that to engage in inappropriate sexual behaviors, which is why this this education that you'll be providing these resources are so important because, you know, adolescents with autism have difficulties with social interaction, and that can impact a sexual health uh, education. We, We talked about stigmatization insufficient sexual education leads them just not to know, not to understand. And, you know, that ableism assumes autistic people do not have sexual feelings, but you and I both know that that is not true at all. And, and, and also oftentimes people with autism can be excluded from social interaction. So this education that you're providing through this federal funding is tremendously important, not only to help destigmatize, but also to provide the appropriate education so that people can engage in healthier and happier relationships. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And when does this um, program begin? When, when do you start working on this? We have already started working on it, uh, and it goes until March 2024, so you can expect some, you know, very exciting resources uh, in uh, that realm from us. And, you know, we've got a a number of other really exciting projects around sexual health education in general uh, coming out in the near future as well. And so where can people access this, this information? And just a quick question, you're working on this through 2024, March, but did you say that you were going to be, there would be information that would be um, put out during that time period or is it after yeah. um, that 24? Yeah. So within, between, between now and uh, the project runs between now and March, we do a lot of consultation work. We do a lot of um, you know, research. We do a lot of working with, you know, we develop working groups and we, those working groups um, consist of people with expertise and lived experience. And then we develop our resources uh, with them as well. And so we're bringing this all together and we create, um, for this particular project, we're creating toolkits. And then, you know, the first one I believe will be coming out hopefully uh, next, next spring, um, possibly. And then, you know, there'll be other resources following that as well over the next two years. Fantastic. Dr. Jessica Wood, thank you so much for your contribution to the program. Great information and best of luck with your project. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Had a little medical emergency 
ourselves in my family today my, involved my dog who uh, got a stick in her eye and it had to be surgically removed. She's now on antibiotics, has the cone of shame and uh, also a little pain medication. Anyway, she's getting lots of love and attention. I hope you are too. Um, we've got lots to talk about in the second hour of the Sunday night health show. i uh, going to be talking about dreams and what do they actually mean? I mean, I have to be honest, when somebody says they want to tell me about their dream, I just think, oh, I'd rather go to a rock fight. Anyway, um, also, I do feel it's important to educate you about how to administer naloxone. I did mention that they're going to be on college campuses. And also, when is the best time to take your blood pressure medication. The results are in. But um, I want to talk in this half hour, and I have a very special guest coming on very shortly, uh, just about women and careers. And when you go from an illustrious career and transition into, you know, another, um, maybe even having to, um, you know, change everything about your career, you know, a, a makeover, so to speak, in one's career. But, um, but first and foremost, I want to talk about how for decades we have been failing to recognize ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity in girls. And that has created what some people refer to as a lost generation of women. And as you send your daughters back to school, consider the fact that girls are closing one gender gap that we don't really want to. And that is the diagnosis of ADHD. Between 2003 and 2011, parents reported an increase of ADHD diagnoses of 55% of girls compared to 40% for boys. This is on the, uh, the way up the diagnosis in part because, uh, it was difficult to diagnose because, um, most of the diagnosis was geared toward, or the or most of the research was geared toward white boys and the diagnosis had to be made before the age of seven. And so girls tend to develop ADHD later than boys and, and girls have a, a different symptoms. It's much harder to recognize in girls. Um, girls have, um, more, more so they don't have the hyperactivity. They, they more so have the inattention. They have a tendency toward daydreaming. They have difficulty following instructions and they make careless mistakes on homework and tests. ADHD is a chronic neurobiological disorder that affects the brain structurally and chemically. And it also affects the ways in which various parts of the brain communicate with one another. And it's highly heritable. There are treatments for it, uh, medication, and also counseling and other conservative strategies. Um, this leads to a lot of depression and anxiety in girls, especially when they have um, not been diagnosed or the failure has been to properly diagnose the condition. And girls miss out on critical academic services and accommodations and therapy and medication. And, you know, it's not that all kids are diagnosed or people are diagnosed when they're children. Oftentimes women are diagnosed often at the peak of their career or when they're trying to manage kids in the house and, and working outside of the home. And it's just all too overwhelming for them. And so they, although it's a blessing to be diagnosed, it can also be a curse because a lot of women think, what did I miss out on? So just a little education about that. If your girls are having struggles in school, um, daydreaming, that kind of thing, you know, look into it. Um, at least ask for it to be considered as part of the differential diagnosis. Anyway, we're going to shift gears right now, but stay a little bit on the focus of women, um, and women in careers. If you, um, 
this week, if you watched the U.S. Open at all, you saw that uh, an icon, Serena Williams, and, and basically a queen, um, was said she was evolving away from tennis, and um, which means, you know, what is she going to do now? Because at 42, um, you know, I mean, I'm considering going into tennis. I watched a fair bit of tennis this week. I feel like my game has improved. I've, I've bought a new racket. <laughs> Anyway, I've played, I've increased my play as well. And, um, and so it's been fabulous, but no, I, I'm kidding, of course. And, um, because I don't know much about this subject. Uh, that is why I have invited my next guest, Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice before. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. And I've asked her to join me and she's on the line so we can talk about when women need to shift gears in their careers. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? I am fabulous. Good evening to you too. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, don't know if you watched uh, some tennis this week, but it was pretty exciting. Too bad that she, Serena lost in the third round. Um, anyway, on Friday night, I think it was. But anyhow, um, you know, this is a powerful woman, to say the least. This is a woman who's been in the spotlight for a long time. This is a woman who is really at the pinnacle of her career. But And, and probably for somebody like Serena, it's going to be easy to transition into just about anything she wants to do. Um, but, but for women who find themselves midpoint in their career or something happens, um, whatever, they find that they need to actually shift gears or, or shift their career. Um, what are some of the issues and, and how best is it for women to go down that path? That's a really good question. Um, each woman's journey is, can be different, though there can be similarities. First, you have to you know, give yourself that grace, that self-compassion, and allow yourself to be human and say, okay, I need a change in my life. I have these nudges, these urges, intuition that have been, you know, telling me for X period of time that I need to change. And that is okay, right? A lot of times women, we are so wired to be like, quote unquote, loyal, right? And we stay in a position mm -hmm. that we may not particularly <laughs> enjoy, right? And it's we true. just continue yes. doing it. And um, we have like FOMO, like you start realizing, oh my goodness, I'm missing out, you know, but then you f can feel guilty, right? So uh -huh. accepting that you are allowed to make changes, you are not defined by the job, the career that you are in. That is huge for any high-performing individual. Very interesting. You're, you are not defined by the career or the job that you're in. And, and and I love that you said we are loyal. We have a tendency to be loyal. And so oftentimes women may choose to stay with a company because they like the company, for example, versus go for the money, <laughs> which yeah. might be a wiser decision for a lot of women since other things can come into play and affect a woman's career as well, like ageism, which we're going to talk about shortly, and lookism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how... Uh, you know, what do you think Serena or somebody like Serena is going through? Difficult to go into the minds of somebody, but somebody who has been in the spotlight for such a long time has made this a career, but, but I think obviously has other priorities now. She has a young child. She wants to be there for her. Yeah. What do you think some of the thoughts are 
um, going through her head right now? And, and do you think this is going to be easy or are there going to be some challenges there? Yeah, you know, she recently had an article in Vogue and she really bared it all, which I was quite impressed and surprised that she shared mm-hmm. so much information. So she's, you know, she's turning 41 end of this month. Her daughter just turned five. Actually, my daughter and her share the same birthday, just turned five September the 1st. Wow. And she's like, her daughter wants, just a daughter, what do you want? And her daughter's biggest wish is to be a big sister. And that is gnawing mm-hmm. on her. And the daughter's five years old. And, you know, in the article, she mentioned how her and her husband, who was very supportive, um, went to the doctor this past year to make sure that they were okay to start trying another family. Now, she mentioned another point. When she was pregnant with her first, she was two months pregnant in 2017. And no one really knew Mm -hmm. she was pregnant. And there's some sense of regret that she didn't get to enjoy it as she would have loved to do it. But at the same time, she was torn because she loves tennis so much. But she realized in order to satisfy the dream to be, you know, the mother she wants to be and grow her family, she's going to have to let go of tennis, at least now. Who knows? You never know what will happen down the road. You know, she's the greatest right. of all time as far as tennis. She could come back. Who knows? But right now uh-huh. she's like, okay, I have a time limit. I love my family. I want to grow it. I need to put my all in. So that was her take. And I was surprised, but not really surprised as a woman and someone who's also made that change in her career. Dr. Tomi Mitchell is my guest. We are talking about ageism for women and lookism. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for staying on the line. Um, What exactly is lookism? Yeah, lookism is a way we judge other people based on their youthful appearance, right? The youthful, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, you know, full cheeks, the nice jawline, the slim waist for a woman, you know, those boyish good looks for a guy. That's how we're judged. So it's a really a challenge for individuals who perhaps don't meet the quote unquote standard, because again, they're often judged negatively based on this. And it goes in, and, you know, it ties with ageism as well. And, and gender ageism is that intersectionality of age and gender bias. And this is a growing yeah. concern for professional women. And um, according to a recent survey um, that was done with Catherine Lindner of Outwit Inc. Um, re- revealed that gender ageism was real and that women started to feel uh, this gender ageism starting at age 35, which was surprising to me. Yes. I was surprised too. I was surprised it was that young, frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, a third of all respondents of the 729 in the survey felt they could not get a job or interview because of their age. And and the age here was um, 29, I think it was, to 72. Um, and so... felt they couldn't get a a job or an interview because of their age. And and the most common experiences were feeling opinions were ignored and seeing younger colleagues get attention. 42% felt that and not being invited to key meetings, 35%. I mean, it sounds like ageism is rampant and only getting worse. Is this what you're um, seeing in your practice? 
definitely is. It's interesting you mentioned the practice because my practice is split into um, like traditional medicine as well as aesthetic medicine. So I actually see clients that come to me because they want a fresh look. You know, they're not quite sure what they want, but they feel like they look old or, you know, they're looking for that job promotion or they're newly single. So this is a conversation I actually have quite often um, with my clients, and it is quite common. Um, A lot of older women, because 80% of my clients are women, they do feel like they're not how they should be. They do feel judged and mm-hmm. you know, our, right? And that's and that's real. And I and I get that we have to validate their feelings. But I think part of this thing is understanding what what is really the root cause of this ageism. Like, what is it? You know, because I'm seeing there's lots of stereotypes with older individuals. People think that they're not willing to learn, right? Or they're too expensive, or they're stuck in their mm-hmm. ways, right? So really, mm-hmm. kind of dismantling that, and that's for each person to do their best to shine. Hopefully they're in a company that, you know, is very strong with DEI, but that's kind of my take, you know, beauty, ageism. I think if you look from the inside and then you pour out, I think you'll get better results. That, that genuineness, you can't fix, you can't repair that. You can't fix that. You can't fake it. Absolutely. And you can't underestimate the experience that older yes. workers um, in the workplace have, but you know, when we have gendered ageism, it affects women's job security and ultimately their financial viability. And so, you know, it actually has such a negative impact on, you know, the economy basically, and, yeah. and also on, on, on healthcare and, and social programs and that kind of thing, when it's just literally based on how somebody looks because, yeah. and, and it's not just somebody who is in their sixties or seventies, we're talking 30 to 35 to 40 year olds felt that, um, 70, first of all, 77% of those under 35, according to the study reported the negative impact of gendered ageism, 77% of those under 35. And at starting at age 35, women begin to experience gendered ageism and with 60% of those between 35 to 40 reporting the experience. Are you seeing women in your clinical practice who are between the ages of 35 and 40 who are wanting a fresher look? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's amazing. But that goes along with this with this survey. Um, it's, it's just shocking. I know that uh, women in their 20s are getting Botox and fillers and, and that kind of thing and, and feeling that that's going to prevent that aging process. I mean, eventually we're going to have a hundred percent of 60 and 70 year olds running the workplaces, but they look 25, <laughs> <laughs> but they feel it. <laughs> exactly. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Once again, it's always a pleasure to have you. It's time for the bedroom bulletin. Welcome back to the final half hour, final couple of segments of the Sunday night health show. And, um, back to the bedroom doesn't always mean sex. Uh, it can mean some other things, but first and foremost, this might lead you to sex (laughs) and to continue our little, um, fun segment with the chance to win a womanizer, a $200 clitoral stimulation device worth every penny as one 80 year old texted me about once. Um, Anyway, and so I've asked you to send in your best pickup lines. You can text me 
1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can email nursetalkathotmail.com. I just wanted to read to you a couple of, um, a few of the entries that I've received so far. And over the next couple of weeks, Leo and I will decide who should be the winner. Um, Leo, I'm not even sure if I, if you've seen any of these, um, yet, <laughs> but I'll read them off to you. So one entry came in from Lori from Manitoba and she, she wrote, I'm single. And once years ago in a bar, I was standing beside a handsome man when I turned to him and asked, can I buy you a drink or would you just like the money? Well done. It reminds me of, I have four sisters and my, um, you know, there was no end to in the teenage years not wanting to go out with somebody. And my father would always say very seriously, can you just ask him if you can take the money instead? <laughs> Which my father thought was just such a much wiser decision than to go out with somebody you didn't like. Anyway, I got another one from George from Ontario. Thank you, George. And he wrote, my best line has always been, there must be something wrong with my eyes. I can't take them off you. It led to my 40-year marriage. Well, congratulations, George. Well done. And then this last one, which actually led me to think of uh, this subject for this segment, was from Edward in Alberta. You know me, right? Oh, that's right. I've only met you in my dreams. Anyway, so those are some of the entries. That's what you're up against. Thanks for sending them all in. I've got a whole bunch more, but I just thought those were, were pretty good ones. They're the contenders right there. Um, anyway, so the contest continues and uh, send me your best pickup lines. And especially if it ended in a good way, you know, it ended on in, in a good relationship or you've been married ever since that line. Um, let me know about it because that could increase your chances for winning the womanizer anyway, but uh, I've only mentioned my dreams. How many times have you said that dreams? I'll tell you, they can be entertaining, disturbing, or strange, downright bizarre. Everybody dreams, even if you don't remember it the next day, I have to say the thing that just drives me crazy is when somebody says they want to tell me about their dream or, Oh, do you want to hear my dream? Or I dreamed about this. And I think, Oh no. Anyway, um, dreams are basically stories and images that your mind creates while you sleep and they can be vivid. They can make you feel happy or sad or scared. Sometimes you actually may be able to redirect. I I've actually done that myself where so I have a tendency toward, um, uh, sleepwalking. <laughs> That's great. And nightmares as well. So, um, and sometimes I can redirect that nightmare to ha to make it have a better outcome so that I'm not scared. Cause quite frankly, you get scared from nightmares in the middle of the night, but dreams can seem perfectly rational or confusing. They can seem like they can last forever. They last about 30 minutes. Um, and there's a couple of, uh, different types of dreams. They can happen anytime during your sleep, but you have your most vivid dreams during the REM phase of sleep, which is the rapid eye movement. And that's when your brain is the most active. And some experts claim that we dream between four and six times a night. Probably is right. I'm somebody who has a tendency to remember the dreams and I kind of like thinking about them, but you'll never hear me say, do you want to hear what I dreamed last night? 
because I really don't want to put you to sleep. And I hope you don't go to sleep during this segment or any part of the show. Although (laughs) I can't say people haven't emailed me and told me that. Anyway, it's late for some of you. Um, There are lucid dreams and that's one when you know you're dreaming. And I seem to have those lucid dreams. Um, lucid dreaming comes with a boost of activity in parts of the brain that are usually restful during sleep. And it's a brain state between REM sleep and being awake. Some, and, and that's what I'm able to do. I'm, I've been able to influence my dream, change that story, change the outcome. I know that I have done that. And, um, and now I'm glad in the researching of this particular segment to find out that, you know, that is actually a real thing. Um, and, and it has helped me as a tactic during, you know, the occasional nightmare that I've had. Uh, I I have a tendency and you probably do too, to have the same dream over and over again. Mine is always about, Oh, here I go telling you about my dream anyway. (laughs) Uh, no, but it's that one where I'm late for class or I've missed the exam or I failed the exam. Don't ask me why. Uh, but nightmares are basically bad dreams and they're common apparently. And they can occur because of stress or conflict or fear, trauma, emotional problems, medication or drug use or illness. I probably have all of that anyway. Um, and, uh, but I do notice that I will have more nightmares when I am sick, for example. Um, but if you apparently have nightmares over and over again, it may be that your subconscious or, or dreams, the same dreams repeatedly, your subconscious may be trying to tell you something and, you know, so it's maybe not a bad idea to listen to it, but you may want to speak to somebody. If you're having nightmares that are causing trouble in your life or, um, watch me have one tonight. I, I can't remember the one, the last time I had a nightmare, but I just know that I've had one or several and you probably have too. Misery loves company. Um, but, um, but if you need to talk to somebody about it, they might be able to help you figure out what's causing your nightmares and help give you some tips to calm those. There's a lot of theories about why we dream, but nobody knows for sure. I do know one thing is important. Sleep is critical for health, for your immune system, for mood, for energy levels. Um, you know, some people say, dreams have no purpose, no meaning. I, I have a tendency to go with that. I mean, I, I don't know, but others say we need dreams for emotional, mental, and physical health. But, um, and studies have demonstrated the importance of dreams to the health and well-being. In one particular research study, um, the researchers woke people just as they were going into REM sleep, and they found that those who weren't allowed to dream had more tension, more anxiety, more depression, a harder time concentrating, lack of coordination, weight gain, and a tendency to hallucinate. And a lot of dream experts feel that dreams exist to help solve problems in our lives, incorporate memories, process emotions. You know, if you go to bed with a a troubling thought, you may wake up with a solution or at least feel better about about the situation, about who's to say it doesn't have to do with just having a good night's sleep. I think a good night's sleep helps a lot. And and in fact, I think that a good night's sleep, I've never been one to lie awake at night and think about issues or a list or what I have to do the next day or anything. I have a little meditation that I do and I fall asleep. And because I feel like if I'm going to waste time being awake, thinking about things, it's, it's really uh, unproductive 
um, because it's the middle of the night, you know, it's so much better to deal with problems when you have had a good night's sleep under your belt and you feel well rested and, and you can face, basically you can face anything. Dreams may help your brain process your thoughts or your events of the day, or it just could be normal brain activity. We really don't know. We have so much to learn about the brain. And I'm, I'm hoping that we um, learn this as, as the years go on. REM sleep only lasts a few minutes early in the night, but gets longer as we sleep. So later in the night, it might last more than a half an hour. So you might spend half an hour in a dream. And, you know, sometimes it can feel like hours um, that you're in a dream. Sigmund Freud believed that dreams were a window into our subconscious and that they reveal a person's unconscious desires, thoughts, and motivation, or that there was a way, it was a way for people to satisfy urges and desires that weren't acceptable to society. I like that one. <laughs> anyway, get it out through your dreams. Um, you know, dreams may affect, may, may reflect your thoughts or your feelings, deepest desires, fears, concerns, especially the dreams that happen over and over again. But anyway, a lot of people report having similar dreams. They, they, report being chased or they fall off a cliff or they show up in public naked. And there may be some hidden stress or anxiety that is related to that. But anyway, for whatever reason we dream, dreams cannot predict the future. If you happen to dream, you know, have a dream and it comes true, it's probably more than likely a coincidence. So anyway, dreams can though motivate you potentially to act in a certain way. And so they, they could, um, change your future or help you to change your future. But anyway, mostly we forget dreams very easily and maybe we're designed to forget our dreams because maybe it's, you know, could be better sometimes than, than people's lives. And if we remember them all, we might not be able to tell dreams from real memories. Anyway, it's a interesting little subject and, um, who knows? Dreams may be stored in your memory waiting to be recalled. And that might be why you remember a dream later in the day. Or sometimes you can't remember a dream the second you wake up and you think that was just an amazing dream I was having. Oh my gosh. And I have no idea what it was about, but it made me feel great. Anyway, whatever. I hope you have sweet dreams, just not just yet. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.